Welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm definitely glad it did not uh, ice this morning because they were threatening me to change my title to Ice Pastor. It seems like every time I'm supposed to speak, uh, that happens. Some of you know the true story about Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, where he actually took a penknife and he took his personal Bible and he cut out parts of the Bible that he either didn't agree with or he didn't believe. Now, I was thinking about that this week because of the text we come to this morning as we, as a church family, continue this series you can see up on the banners here called The Life of Christ as we're walking through the gospel of Luke together. And the whole purpose of this series, we've been saying this, is we want to spend time with Jesus, learning from Jesus, how to be like Jesus. Now, if you've ever read through the gospel of Luke or really any of the gospels, you recognize, you come to these passages every so often that I would just call the hard sayings of Jesus. Just some of the more challenging parts of the Gospels. Now listen, they're hard some of the times just because they're hard to understand. But they're also hard because sometimes, if we're just honest, they're hard to swallow. They're hard to accept. They're hard to receive. And this morning is one of those. It's a hard saying of Jesus. But here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to cut it out from our Bibles just because we don't like it. Just because we don't want to hear it. We are going to trust together as a church that Jesus has something important here for us that he wants us to know. So just going into it, understand these are going to be some high challenge verses, but just like all of Jesus' life, just like all of Jesus' uh, of his teachings, they're also filled with this incredible invitation to us. And that's really what I want us to think about this morning before we enter into this text. If you're following on your notes with me, Jesus' hard sayings are high challenge, yes, but they're also high invitation. High challenge and high invitation. We say it this way a lot here. They are 100% truth and 100% grace. So in other words, even in the hard sayings, even in the sayings we might want to cut out of our Bibles, the assumption that we work with together as a church family is that Jesus actually is saying these things for our benefit. Is that the assumption you go into the Bible thinking? Like all of the things Jesus said is actually for my benefit. Jesus actually wants me to live the best life I can possibly live. And these hard sayings, they're a part of that. They're a part of calling me to a different kind of life. And so with that, I invite you to take your Bible and turn it to Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25, if you haven't already. We have Bibles in the seat underneath you somewhere there. You can grab one of those if you didn't bring your own Bible, and you can find Luke 14 on page 729. In fact, if you don't own a Bible, we say this regularly, take one of those Bibles home with you. We'd love for you to have that. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this whole text, and I'm going to come back and unpack it, but here's my encouragement to you. As I'm reading this, I want you to listen for the challenge. I don't think that's going to be hard, but I also want you to listen for the invitation that Jesus has for us in this passage. So let's take a look at Luke 14, starting in verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, 
Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray. Lord, we do trust you that these words are for our benefit. They're for our growth. They're because you love us. So help us not only to be challenged this morning, which we certainly will, but also let us be invited into what it is you're inviting us into. As you said yourself, give us ears to hear. Would your Holy Spirit invade this room now and speak to us as only you can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you probably noticed that this text is all about what it means to be a disciple. It's all about discipleship, which is a great thing because that's really the whole purpose of the church with a capital C, right? Jesus tells the church to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. So we learn in this text some things that Jesus is looking for if we want to be a disciple of his. If you're following there, the first thing we see is that Jesus is not interested in large crowds or casual followers. Jesus is not interested in large crowds or casual followers. Now, the context of this whole passage is that Jesus is on the road. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he is at the height of his popularity. He has large crowds, as Luke mentions, following him. Some scholars think it could be up to 20,000 people at this point. Now, I don't want you to miss this fact. These large crowds represent a potential pool of disciples, right? He's got this 20,000 or so people. All of them represent what could be a potential disciple. This is great. I mean, what an opportunity for Jesus. They're following him because they recognize there's something rare. There's something special about him. And they suspect, as he's on his way to Jerusalem, that something rare and something special is going to happen there. Now, in my eyes, maybe in yours as well, this is all good news. This is what Jesus should want. He's got this crowd at the tip of his fingers, but not for the first time or for the last time. Instead of embracing this crowd, Jesus actually speaks some words that thins it out. He thins it out. When I think of this story and others like it, I used to imagine a politician standing up on a podium and saying something like this. If you're going to vote for me, you're voting to lose your homes and families. You're asking for higher taxes and lower wages. You're deciding in favor of losing all you love best. So come on, who's on my side? That's not the way to win over a crowd. 
But isn't that what Jesus is doing in this astonishing passage? He does a similar thing in John 6. I refer to it on your notes there. Do you want to be my disciple, do you? You sure? Well, in that case, you need to hate your family, give up all of your possessions, and get ready for a nasty death. Who's coming with me? This is hardly the way, as Dale Carnegie said, right, to win friends and influence people. But here's what I want to suggest to you. What if that illustration of a politician is not what we should think of when we read these words? What if a better illustration is that Jesus is the leader of a great expedition? An expedition that is fraught with potential danger and demands complete loyalty to the leader in order to be successful. Listen, if you were invited to go on an expedition, an adventure of some sort, wouldn't you want to know up front what the dangers would be, what the risks might be beforehand? Wouldn't you want to know what it would really take to make it to the end? I would. I've been reading about some of the expeditions that took place earlier in the, in the 20th century to the South Pole, right? It was a Uh, a place where they hadn't explored yet. And so they were sending out all these expositions. And one of them was by Robert Scott. He was an Englishman and he thought that they were going to do it. So they packed all this stuff. He got a bunch of men uh, to go with him and every person on that trip died because they were not prepared for what lay ahead of them. They didn't pack for the South Pole. They packed for a cold winter in England. And the result is none of them came back alive to tell the story. They weren't properly prepared. Listen, Jesus is not a politician trying to gather a crowd. He is the leader of a great expedition, the greatest expedition expedition ever. An expedition to go into the whole world with the good news of the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Now, we need to understand that when Jesus says this, right, he is on the road to Jerusalem. He is on the road to the cross. And he knows this. The crowds who were following him thought he was on his way to an empire. They thought he was going to overthrow these Romans who had invaded their country. But this is why he speaks to them like this in the most vivid way possible. He tells them, listen, if you choose to follow me, understand you are not on the road to worldly glory and worldly power and worldly riches. You are on a dangerous expedition that is gonna require complete loyalty to me and it may even require sacrificing your very life. These words are high challenge, Yeah, but they're also very high grace. I love the fact that Jesus is upfront with any would-be disciple about what following him might really mean. He doesn't hide anything, does he? He tells us what it's gonna be like. I was thinking about this this past week. I was looking at some hotels. We need to book a hotel room, right? And I, I get drawn in like 79 bucks a night. That's a great deal. And then there's this little asterisk. You all know what that asterisk stands for, right? Other taxes and fees not included. So you get to the end of the checkout, you're like, 120 bucks? What just happened here? They all have these hidden fees, but Jesus doesn't hide the cost up front of what it's going to be like to follow him. There's no asterisk. You want to know what it really is going to take to make me the Lord of your life? I'll give you fair warning. 
It's going to mean putting me first, but it's going to be the adventure of a lifetime. It's going to be the adventure of a lifetime. But I want to prepare you for what it's going to take. High grace. Now that's closely related to the second thing we learn about discipleship in this passage, which is to be a disciple of Jesus is all or nothing. To be a disciple of Jesus is all or nothing. It was Kyle Eidelman who wrote, Jesus is not interested in gathering more fans. He's interested in committed followers. So at the height of his popularity, he says it to everybody. Everybody, the whole crowd. It's me or nothing. It's me or nothing. That's what discipleship is. What this means is that there are no double standards in the Christian life. There is a thought, I believe, in the world today that there's like different levels of Christians, right? You got the, quote, regular Christians. Those are the people who believe. They don't get that excited about it. They might come to church. They pray when they're in trouble. And then there's like the devoted Christians, the Jesus freaks, the people who are like kind of all out. They're a little strange. But what does Jesus say when he turns to the crowds here? What's the word he uses? Anybody, anybody who wants to follow me has to take up a cross. If you want to be a part of what I'm doing in this world, you've got to put me absolutely first, ahead of your parents, ahead of your spouse, ahead of your career, ahead of your possessions. I have to be number one. There are no two standards. There are no three standards. There's one standard. Full discipleship is an absolute requirement of everyone who will follow Jesus. It's not optional. To be a disciple, friends, is to be a Christian. Those are the same thing. They're interchangeable. You can't say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not into all that. I don't want to take it too far. There's no two standards. I read on MSNBC, they did a report on the new vegetarians. You're going to love this. One of them, named Christy Pug, captured the report well with these words, I usually eat vegetarian, but I really like bacon. (laughs) According to MSNBC, she represents a growing number of people who refer to themselves as flexitarians. You can look this up. This is not a joke. Most of the time, they refuse to eat meat, but once in a while, they make an exception. Christy explains it this way. I really like vegetarian food, but I'm not 100% committed. Flexitarian. That's a good way to describe how some people might view their relationship with Jesus. I like him most of the time. But this whole idea of giving up my whole life for him, to take up my cross, to die to myself in order to follow him? I'm not so sure about that. You know, that can manifest itself in any number of ways in our lives, right? And trust me, it creeps into my life every single day. Every single day, these thoughts come into my mind. Well, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. But don't ask me to forgive that person who hurt me. I want to hold on to that. I want to follow Jesus, but what's the whole idea of giving him back part of my money that I've earned? to do kingdom work in this world. I worked hard for that. I wanna follow Jesus, but don't you dare talk to me about my sexuality. I wanna follow Jesus, but can't I just cut out the parts of the Bible I don't agree with? Friends, the challenge of discipleship is that it's all or nothing. 
we were playing catchphrase as a family the other night, and our son, who's 10, he, he got the, if you don't know what catchphrase is, you know, it's basically, uh, you try to explain what the word is, and you pass it, and you don't want it to end on your turn. So he was, a, he got it, and the word was all in. Now, my 10-year-old son had no idea what that meant, which is good, because it's a gambling term, right? I'm glad he doesn't know what all in means. What all in means is in poker, if you think you've got a hand that can win, and you're that confident about it, you might lay all of your chips on the table. And you would say, I'm all in. I believe this hand is going to win. That's a picture of what following Jesus is. It's not holding back some of the chips just in case. It's putting all my chips in and saying, I'm all in. Even if that may mean taking up my cross. Even if that means putting you first in my life. It's why Jesus says in verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That's being all in. It's not a threat. That's not a threat. It's just an actuality. If you want to be my disciple, you got to be all in. Friends, this is why we say here on these banners, we are fighting shallow Christianity. Because shallow Christianity is no Christianity at all. We want to be people who are encouraging one another to be all in. To be all in in this great expedition, this great adventure that Jesus has called us to. This is really the purpose of these two parables in this passage. Jesus asks the rhetorical questions, who of you, who of you would start a building project without having the funds in order to complete it? Who of you would go to war with, uh, with knowing the fact that you would lose the war in the very beginning? And the, of course, the answer is what? None of us would do that. None of us would do that. And in the same way, Jesus says, you need to count the cost of what it is you're doing. You need to count the cost, right? And the cost might mean losing your very life for me. And so the challenge of discipleship is that Jesus is interested in disciples, not crowds, and disciples are people who are all in. But friends, as I looked at this text this week, I'm convinced there is more to it than just challenge. There's more going on here. It's why Jesus uses such surprising language, in my opinion. Remember, he is not just 100% truth, which is what this is feeling like right now. He's always 100% grace as well. So where's the grace? Where's the grace in this? In the past, when I read this text, I would feel very convicted. And don't get me wrong, conviction is sometimes of the Lord, right? It's from the Holy Spirit. But maybe a better word to describe is I would feel very guilty. Well, I'm not all in. I'm not 100% committed, and so I've just got to tighten my spiritual belt a little bit more, and I'm going to prove to Jesus that I'm all in. And so I would start doing all kinds of things for him. Now, it's no question that what we do for God is important. Please never misunderstand us when we say this, but if you've been coming to Cherry Hills, you know what we've been learning? We've been learning that what we do for God is the natural result of who I am becoming. What I do for God is going to be the natural result of who I'm becoming. And Jesus is much more interested in who you're becoming than what you could ever do for him. Indeed, it's only out of becoming more like Jesus that I begin to do the things that actually matter. So I'll ask you, what is Jesus' invitation here? Did you see it? Where's the grace? 
Is he calling you to buckle up your spiritual commitment belt? Or is there something else in this text? Well, I'll suggest there's something else going on here. And I'm gonna suggest if you're following that in this passage, Jesus invites us to reorder our heart to be centered on him. That's the invitation. Reorder your heart, reorder your love to be centered on me because listen to me. It is only when you love him first that you will ever be able to live a life worth living. I have your best interest at mind. And so center your heart on me and I promise, I promise everything else will flow out of that. Well, where do I get this? I get it in these strange words in verse 26. Would you read them out loud on your notes with me? It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now be honest, when you read that, do you see that as a threat or as an invitation? I have always read it as a threat, but I'm suggesting to you it's actually an invitation. Let's take a closer look look at this word hate. Why would Jesus choose this word hate? I mean, certainly in the full light of the New Testament, Jesus is not demanding unqualified hatred of these people, right? He can't tell us in Mark 7 to honor your father and mother and now tell us you need to be hostile towards your father and mother. He can't tell us to love our enemies, to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters and now encourage this hatred of him. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is using a teaching technique that was common in his day with other rabbis as well. It's called hyperbole to make a point. I don't think most of us, when we read those words, Uh, think Jesus means actively be hostile towards those people. He's making a point by using very dramatic language. In Jewish usage in the Bible, the word hate, yes, it can mean actively hate somebody, to be hostile someone. Let me give you an example. I hate the taste of mushrooms. There's nothing you can do to change that for me. I hate it. I'm hostile towards mushrooms. How people can eat something that potentially could grow on your foot. I just can't, I can't get over it. On the other hand, I might say, I hate this brand of coffee. Now, I'm not going to name any brands because I got in trouble the last time I did that. But does that mean, does that mean that I won't drink that brand of coffee? Oh, you better believe if I'm in a pinch. I will drink that brand of coffee. What it means is comparatively speaking, I prefer another brand of coffee to that coffee. That's what's going on here. The best example of this is found in Genesis 29. Some of you know the story, it's about Jacob. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. He was tricked into marrying Leah, if you remember that story. And it says twice in Genesis 29 that Jacob loved Rachel, but he hated Leah. Now we read that and we go, wow, that's super harsh. Why did he marry her if he hated her? But does that mean he actively hated her? That he was hostile towards her? No, because in verse 30, it actually explains for us what this means. It means he just loved Rachel more. What it means when he says it hated Leah, he didn't hate her actively, but compared to Rachel, his love for her was small. His love for Rachel was so great, it couldn't even compare. Even though he wasn't mean, he didn't curse her, he wasn't unkind, he didn't treat her poorly, he was affectionate. Compared to Rachel, 
His attitude toward Leah was like hate. Jesus is saying what a disciple is. What is he saying here? He's saying, I want you to love me more than anyone or anything else in this world. Yes, even more than your parents. Yes, even more than your spouse. Yes, even more than your children. I want your heart. I want your love. Our love for him as disciples should comparatively be greater than anything and anyone else. Don't misunderstand me. This doesn't mean Jesus wants your sentiment. It doesn't mean that we should have need to have good feelings after the sermon today. That's not what he's after. He wants your love. I know this is awkward for men sometimes to say this, but he wants your love, your love for as, as real as it is for your wife or your husband or your parents or your brother or your sister or your son or your daughter. He is not just saying that I want to be first in your life. I want to be the biggest priority in your life, though he is saying that. He is saying that. He's actually saying, I want to be the person you love the most. This is an invitation to an intimate relationship with Jesus. High challenge, but what an invitation. I am inviting you into a personal relationship with me. A relationship that is based on love. Friends, part of the reason I think Jesus uses such graphic language here is he wants us to understand that the choice of discipleship is not between Jesus and the devil. The hard part of discipleship is that it's way more subtle than that. It's between Jesus and the things we love most in this world. Our strongest allegiances, Jesus and family. Jesus in business, Jesus in the stuff of this world, those other loves, if we let them, can become a stumbling block to discipleship. And so he invites us to understand that love for me must take precedence over love for anyone or anything else. It'd be so easy to just turn this into a to-do list, right? If I'm going to be an all-in disciple, I need to be there. Every time the church doors are open, I need to read my Bible. Pastor Brian just said I need to be in a life group of some sort. I need to serve the least of these. Listen, all those things are essential to growth, but that is not the message of discipleship. That is not what Jesus is after most in your life. For you to do a bunch of Christian duties for him. What he's after most in your life is a relationship. He wants your heart. Just this morning, I was reading in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse, or 1, verse 9, and this word just popped out to me for some reason. It says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that word fellowship just struck me in a new way today. When you hear the word fellowship, I don't know about you, but mostly what I think about is my relationship with you as the body of Christ, right? We share fellowship with one another. But doesn't it just boggle your mind that Jesus wants to have that same kind of relationship with you? He wants to have fellowship with you. That's the invitation of discipleship. 
It is amazing. St. Augustine in his book, Confession, says the essence, the key to the transformed character, the key to a great life, the key to courage, the key to forgiveness, the key to peace, the key to the kind of great heart you want to have is what? It's not willpower. It's not working hard. He says it's the right ordering of your love. I couldn't say it any better. It's exactly what Jesus is saying here. The key to a life well lived is the right ordering of your love. The right ordering of your love. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I have this on the screen. The Christian way is different. Different from other religions who call us to do things. It's different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your money, and so much of your work. I want you. That's the essence of what it means to be a disciple. He wants a meaningful relationship with you. Some of you have heard this your whole life. Some of you have never heard this. The gospel we call it, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that he has come so that he can restore the fellowship that was broken by sin. And that's exactly what he offers us here. Not by going through the motions, but by centering our heart, our love on him. Now don't miss this either. Here's some more good news. The paradox of this whole invitation, I don't know if you believe this, but do you believe that the best way you could love your parents The best way you could love your spouse, the best way you could love your siblings, and the best way you could love your children is by getting this right? What if Jesus actually has our best interests at heart here? What if we work under the assumption that this isn't just a challenge, it's an invitation not just to love him more, but to learn how to love others out of his love, which is a much greater love than I can muster up on my own? That's the promise in this passage that the love for Jesus is going to be so real in my life. It's going to eclipse every other love, but as it does that, it'll teach me how to love the same way he loves. That's exactly, in my opinion, why Jesus ends this section talking about salt. Like at first glance, aren't you like, what in the world is this little stuff about salt here? This seems completely out of context, but it isn't. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is saying here, when, dis- when disciples make me the primary relationship in their life, something beautiful will begin to emerge. I called it a salty Christian. Don't you want to be a salty Christian? Would you read verses 34 and 35 out loud on your notes there? It says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Salt was extremely valuable in Jesus' day. In fact, soldiers were actually paid. In a small measure, part of their salary was salt. Now, salt is different than the kind of salt we recognize today. Basically, they got salt by evaporating dead seawater. And so it included some other chemicals and some things like carnalite and salt gypsum. But salt was used in this day in three primary ways. And if you're following on your notes, I put this down for you. First, salt was used as a preservative. A preservative in the earliest. It's the earliest of all preservatives, right? 
If you didn't salt your meat, it would go rotten. It would get putrefied. It would go bad. But if you applied salt to it, you could keep it fresh for an extended length of time. Second, salt was used as flavoring. Food without salt can be pretty bland. I know, I'm on a low-sodium diet, trust me. But add a little bit of salt, and it brings the flavor of that dish to life. And then third, salt was used as fertilizer. This may sound strange to us today, but again, remember the chemical compound that was salt back then was different than we have today. And first century farmers would use it as an agent for growth on their land. Jesus alludes to this in verse 35. Now, what does this have to do with disciples? I think you can probably see it. If you're falling on your notes there, disciples whose hearts are all in for Jesus are like salt. They can be preservers helping to impede the growth of evil and decay in our world. By our courage, our hope, our joy, our kindness, we can bring flavor into our relationships with those both inside of our family and outside of our family. And we can be like fertilizer. We can actually be agents of kingdom growth in this world. That is the kind of effect that Jesus envisions for a person who aligns their love with him. You can be a salty Christian. It's what happens when our hearts are properly aligned. And again, I'll remind you, it's when you do that, you can actually love your parents and love your spouse and love your brother and sister and love your son and daughter in this way, as a preserver, as a flavorer, as a fertilizer. But Jesus has a warning here as well, doesn't he? Another high challenge. Salt that has lost its ability to preserve, to flavor, to fertilize. What good is that? While our modern salt is pure and can't lose its flavor, can't be diluted, salt in this day was impure. And it could actually become diluted. It could lose its flavor. It could lose its saltiness. So once salt loses its purpose, what good is salt, Jesus says? Here then are the hard words of Jesus to any would-be disciple. A saltless disciple is no disciple at all. They've lost the purpose. They're not good for what you've been called to be. Examples of this are abounding in the New Testament. Think about Judas. Did he look like salt? Did people think he was salt? Oh, yeah. They didn't know until the end. None of the other disciples knew he looked like salt for all to see, and yet he was the betrayer of Jesus. There's other examples. I think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. They were offering this very salty gift to the early church, or so it seemed. But it wasn't really. It didn't come from a heart that had aligned itself with Jesus. I think about other small mentions Paul makes, like Demas, who loved the world. He was deluded by the world. Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1. All of these look like salt, but they had become diluted. That's why Jesus challenged us, those who have ears to hear. If you've got ears to hear, listen. Count the cost. Count the cost of following me. It's all or nothing, but if you so choose, a beautiful thing is going to begin to emerge in your life. You will become a salty Christian, a person who will preserve who will flavor and who will fertilize this world. 
you will have even a greater impact on your parents, a greater impact on your spouse, a greater impact on your children, a greater impact on your family, on your neighbors, in your workplace. You will be like salt. And so you probably each saw on your seat, there's a little packet of salt for you. I asked if we could have this because I just want us to remember what discipleship really is. The promise. It's a challenge, but it's also an amazing invitation. And the invitation is when I align my heart with Jesus, he will make me like this salt. Here's the problem, though. We can't keep this salt in this package, can we? If the salt is going to have its purpose, it's got to come out. It's got to be applied to something. And so my question to you is, where do you need to open your salt? Where do you need to be a preserver? Where do you need to be a flavoring? Where do you need to bring fertilizer so that growth can occur? This is the challenge that Jesus offers every one of us. We're going to spend just a minute or two of silence here. Silence is a gift. I think that we lose sometimes, right? We need to be still and know that he is Lord. And the reason we do this is because we want to personally hear from the, the living God. But as we do that, here's the question I want to close with this morning if you're on your notes. Is my heart all in as a salty disciple of Jesus? Is my heart all in as a salty disciple of Jesus, do I hear the challenge, but I do, do I also hear the invitation that as I align my life with his, I'm invited into an adventure of a lifetime. So I'm gonna pray and we'll spend some time in just meditative silence. Lord, we trust that you speak to us that you have specific things for us to hear, not just general things. And so once again, my prayer for us is that we wouldn't just hear the challenge this morning, though some of us need to hear that challenge, but we would also hear the invitation that we are invited to lose our life so that we can actually find it. And so I don't know what you need to speak to these, each of your uh, people in this place this morning. Maybe it is a word of challenge, a word of conviction. Maybe there's something in our lives that we're allowing to dilute our love for you. Show us that. Help us to turn from that. Maybe it's a word of encouragement. That it's not about fulfilling Christian duty, checking things off the box. It's actually about relationship. What an encouragement that is. So would you speak to a heart who needs to hear that this morning? We give you this time and expectation that just as much as we open up your word and you speak, as we open up our hearts in silence and listen, you speak as well. So we wait upon you, Lord.